Josh and um, had a had a, an amazing hello hello had an amazing uh, father moment uh, this week. Um, so there comes this moment in every dad's life where your the kid that you love has to write this kind of of apology note. So there comes this moment like sin is in the heart of all of us, and this kid right here had to write this apology note to her kindergarten teacher. And so if you can sound it out, this is exactly what it says. I am sorry that I stole a notebook. Will you forgive me to Miss Morin from Lou? And then she made her own crying emoji on that bottom right. Oh, there is sin and darkness in the world. Glorious, glorious sin and darkness. We're calling this one uh, The Way, The Witch, and The Wolf. So it's Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20. We're going to get through the double whammy tonight. Uh, let me do this. Let me pray for us. And uh, we'll go straight into Acts 19, 1 through 4, okay? Here we go. Um, dear Jesus, uh, it's with one heart that we pause in the middle of our week. And we come to your word expecting your spirit to move. And so we ask that in your name. Amen. All right, Acts 19.1. It happens that while Apollos, that was last week, is away in Corinth, Paul will make his way down through the mountains, come to Ephesus, and happen upon some disciples there. The first thing Paul says is to those disciples, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you take God into your mind only, or did you embrace him with your heart? Did he get inside of you? And the disciples respond, we've never even heard of that. A Holy Spirit, God within us. You were baptized then, asks Paul. Or how were you baptized then? And then they answer, in John's baptism. And Paul says, that explains it. John preached a baptism of radical life change so that people would be ready to receive the one who is coming after him. And so this is a story that is, um, that helps us orient that the world as Paul sees it, as he travels, not everyone is on the same page and we can totally appreciate that. And so we're referencing John the Baptist who shows up in all four gospels and John the Baptist, as he baptizes people, he prepares the way. John the Baptist has a purpose through the gospel. He's like an Old Testament prophet, getting ready for the Messiah. It's John chapter 1, verse 19. He points across and he says, behold, look, there he is, the Lamb of God, the one who will take away the sin of the world. John the Baptist gives the first audible New Testament gospel account. He calls out Jesus. John the Baptist is an Old Testament prophet saying, I've been preparing the way. And then he points at Jesus and says, that's the one, that's the way. And these disciples in Acts 19 tonight, they're ignorant that Acts 2 has come before Acts 19. 
See, Pentecost has come, and these men don't know it. Functionally, they are living in the Old Testament. 5 and 6 continues on. On hearing this, the disciples, those men, were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. This is the exact same thing that we've seen in Acts before. Peter has done this. John has done this. And now Paul is doing it. The Holy Spirit is coming on them, and they're speaking in tongues to prophesy. The question is why? Like, the question is, why do we need that overt action to show up? And the answer is this. This is a visible demonstration that these 12 disciples are now incorporated into the body of Christ, not the church. Literally, this is the spirit of God coming into these 12 men. And so this is what we get in all of Acts, and we've been repeating it. I hope it is becoming familiar. Salvation is our whole person, you and I, our whole self with God. Like knowing him face to face, knowing that his spirit is given to me because of who Jesus is. And that relationship deepens relative to my maturity with God. And then it deepens with my scriptural understanding. It's why we work through text again and again and again. Paul is going to say this in his epistles. He's going to tell you and I to work out our salvation. We don't save ourselves. We're working it out. We're deepening our relational maturity with God as we deepen our understanding of scripture. This is all about the dynamic movement of the spirit in these 12 men we all know the joke that paul picks where he's going to go upon the city he asks about the jail and the synagogue because he's going to start at one end up in the other no i'm just teasing that was three sermons ago we'll not play that song again paul enters the synagogue and speaks boldly there for three months sam henshaw if you want to download arguing persuasively about the kingdom of god but some of them became obstinate they refused to believe, and they publicly maligned the way. And so Paul will leave them. I'm setting up for your turn to talk here. I'm setting up for your turn to talk. Here's the context. The synagogue at Ephesus is going to allow Paul to stick around for three months teaching, proclaiming, give and take dialoguing in the synagogue. And what he's doing over those three months as he's talking about, yapping about the kingdom of God, what he's saying is this understanding of salvation is the kingdom. It's the whole person's relationship with God deepening in relational maturity. And so after three months, Paul gets the boot. The question is, why? Why was kingdom proclamation a step too far after three months of talking? was the system that Paul was trying to change too entrenched in the culture? Was the system too lucrative, meaning that it had power embedded in it that people were not willing to give up? Was the kingdom too unknown, aka too mystical, or was it too easy? Why don't you talk about it, and then I'll talk to you in just a sec. Okay. Okay, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. Um, 
We'll, uh, we'll, we'll kind of throw them up this time, throw back for Drew Kennard. Um, is the system too entrenched? Is, is Paul kicked out because of the culture? Number one, who's going to go with this one? Okay, got several, good, I'll take it. Who's got it too lucrative? Like there is, there is power to be had and I'm hungry, okay? Not as many. Is the kingdom too unknown? It's, it's like this is a mystical just Drew Kennard, okay. Okay, we'll get that. We'll take Meg Hall and Hallie. All right, we'll take it back. All right, the kingdom's too free. Who likes this one? I love that. Yeah, I love that. So what's the right answer? I don't ever write. Which is, the, right, the reason that we say this is because they all, they've all got value, of course. That's why we ask them. But the question is, like, which one carries the most weight? And that's why we do this. All right, so here's the aha. I've seen the call for unity, right? I've seen A, the, um, the idea of it's too uh, entrenched in culture. The incredible thing about the book of Acts, it is the walkout of the Gospels, the people who have been walking alongside Jesus. But that is the walkout of the Old Testament, which is this. All nations are welcome to becoming the chosen people. All nations, all people are welcome into the chosen ones. So that's the answer to A. The answer to number two, B. We have seen the call all throughout Acts to share everything so that no one goes without. We've seen that in Acts 2. We've seen it in Acts 5. What this is doing, what number two is doing, the idea of lucrativeness, the kingdom orients power correctly which means those who have serve and give from a place of bringing the kingdom to bear. Um, the third one, the mystical, the kingdom is too unknown. I love the way Paul does it. He says, you don't have to take my word for it. You got 500 people you can go talk to, right? The mystical has a face. It is a person. His name is Jesus and he's, go figure, not dead. And then the last one is the free gift of the gospel is the person of Jesus and he has done the work. Repent and believe. That is the call again and again and again to the kingdom. And, and here's the aha about it's too free, it's too easy. The idea that you don't get to earn your way into the kingdom, that spits into the face of college kids. We like to earn stuff. I want to earn the A. I want to know what I'm standing on, how hard I worked to get right where I and you guys sound a lot like the Jewish establishment. We don't earn our way into the kingdom. So Paul, as is, has to leave the synagogue. Apparently there are too many converts to fit into a house, so he rents a lecture hall. Verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 11. God does extraordinary miracles through Paul, and then this little ditty comes out. Jewish exorcists, who happened to be in Ephesus at the same time, tried their hand at what they assumed to be Paul's game. I'm reading from the message version tonight, just switching up, keeping it fresh for everybody. They pronounced the name of the master Jesus over the victims of evil spirits, saying, I command you by the, by the name of Jesus preached by Paul. Okay, so there's our setting you pick the ending. Are we going to get a Mark 9:39 where Jesus says, "Don't stop those guys, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me." Are we going to get a James 2:19? You think there's one God good, the demons believe it. Shut up. 
And then we got 1 Samuel 28, the exorcist or the mediums are going to shriek, ah, fall face down. Or are we getting a Mark 5, 12 in here? The demons beg, send us to the swine and allow us to go into them. Or is there another answer out there? Why don't you guys talk about it, then we'll talk about it. There's a fifth way, whatever. <laughs> All right, choose your own adventure style. Just choose your own adventure. This is just like when you're growing up. Okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, don't stop him. So for those, this is for those of you who haven't read it in your small group or, or personally. Don't stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can say something bad about me in the next. Anybody want that one? I'll take it. James 2.19. The demons are about to shudder. Shudder. Nope, nobody. Okay, okay, a couple. Thank you. I'll take that. Uh, 1 Sam 28. The mediums are going to shriek. I'll face down a couple of us. I'll take it. And then the demons are like, let us go into a particular place. Anybody want to take that one? Okay, very good. Here's the close. The seven sons of a certain Skiva, a Jewish high priest, were trying to do this on a man, and the evil spirit is going to talk back. He says this. He says, I know Jesus, and I've heard of Paul, but who are you? Ah! <laughs> I don't know if that's what he did. No, actually, he said, I, allow me to introduce myself. I got a, a clip of that one. It's for you guys. Now, take your time. Choose your character carefully. They each have their own unique combination of strengths. And... Alrighty. Shouldn't there be a board or some pieces or something to Jenga? No, no. This is a role-playing game. It takes place entirely in our collective imagination. Ooh. I tell the story, and you make choices in the story. Okay. Let's begin. You were all standing on a country road. Legend has it the evil dragon Draconis dwells nearby, guarding a massive pile of treasure. Working as a team, your goal is to track down the dragon, kill him, and then claim the treasure as your own. Jeff, your turn. Oh, it's my turn. Oh, um, what do I do? Roll dice? You tell me what you want to do. Then I roll the dice to see if you're successful. What are my choices? Okay, you're slowing things down, Jeff. Worst introduction ever. Check it. I am Brutality Dobbs, the magician. <laughs> Magic user, baby. That's ridiculous. Uh, some boys challenged me to put Dungeons and Dragons in my sermon, so I tried it. Uh, allow me to introduce myself. All right, here it is. Then the possessed man goes berserk, jumps out, just like that guy did, at the exorcist, beats them up, and tears off their clothes. Naked and bloody, those men run away as fast and they, as they can. What in the world would a young preacher do with this? I don't know, but an old preacher would say this. Throughout the New Testament, and especially in the book of Ephesians, where this episode is taking place, as Paul writes back to this church, he goes again and again and again to the well of there is a real spiritual world at work in your physical world, church of Ephesus. Chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 6, he will go again and again and again. He'll talk about layers of the spiritual world working here and in the now. He, Paul, will never miss on Christ's power from that place over Satan, on Christ's power over darkness, and Christ's power over death. And he throws it to Jesus' name. They're like, we know Jesus and we've heard of Paul, but who the heck are you? Right? There is something about the powerful name of Jesus that the spiritual world must obey. The name Jesus brings peace and wholeness and restoration and health. 
But guys, here's the aha, and you can appreciate this. The demonic realm is not ours to go into willingly. It is not our place to go. And here's why. Because when we start to mess with the undead, the spiritual realm, word gets out. And here comes the ending of that story. Soon, it's all over the news, all over Ephesus, among both Jews and Greeks. The realization will spread that God was in and behind this episode. Curiosity about Paul will develop into reverence for the master Jesus. Many of those who believe will come out of the closet. They'll make a clean break from their secret sorceries. All kinds of witches and warlocks came out of the woodwork. That's called alliteration, friends. With their books of spells and incantations, and they make a huge bonfire. (laughs) Eugene Peterson, uh, our soon-to-be favorite dead theologian. Superstition and the occult practices. He's really old. He's really old. It's just a true statement there. Superstition and the occult are entrenched in Ephesus. Here's what I want us to make sure we catch. That the bonfire was both a confession and a profession of faith. The bonfire was a confession and a profession of faith. And that's where it turns to you guys. How are you at confession? See, here's the thing. Confession and profession in the New Testament are the exact same word. The only difference is ex on the beginning of profession. And what that means is it takes it from an inward understanding, an inward reality, to an outward declaration. Confession and profession are the exact same word. The only difference is the ex prefix on the front. And it takes it from this internal awareness, I'm confessing, I know who I am, to a profession, I know what I again to you, young, maturing, collegiate believers, how is your confession, profession, life? Here's the good news. Confession and profession gets translated throughout your English New Testament as praise, agree, declare, promise, assent. There is incredible hope that confession and profession does not keep you trapped, but in fact, it frees you up when you're able to have an inward awareness of who you are and turn that outward to make a declaration. It's so good. About that time, as things happened, there arose a great disturbance among people of the way. I'll read you a long chunk here. This is the story. A certain silversmith named Demetrius conducted a brisk trade in the manufacturing of shrines to the goddess Artemis. He employed a number of artisans in his business. This is chapter 19, verses 23 through 28. He rounded up his workers and others similarly employed and said, Men, you well know that we have a good thing going here. And you have seen how Paul has barged in and discredited what we're doing by telling people there's no such thing as a god made with human hands. He's an artisan. A lot of people are going along with him, not only here in Ephesus, but all throughout the province. Not only is our little business in danger of falling apart, but the temple of our famous goddess Artemis will certainly end up a pile of rubble as her glorious reputation fades to nothing. 
And this is no mere local matter. The whole world worships our Artemis. And I love this ending line. That set them off in a frenzy. So you can read the rest of that storyline yourself. Basically, it makes sense that the local trade is connected to the local temple. The local trade, the economy, is in the buying and selling of religious artifacts. I would know nothing about that. If, if witches and warlocks are becoming pyromaniacs, then Ephesus would need to stand up for Artemis because they are the guardian of her temple in her city. But they're motivated by money. And so as is most things motivated by money, it was quickly snuffed out. Let's jump over to chapter 20. When the uproar has ended, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people. And finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed for three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. We got a video clip of that. Run. That's it. That's all we had right there. I just wanted to get running. Paul reroutes back through Philippi, back through Thessalonica, back through Berea. You are starting to become familiar with these places. Now, we even run through the city that Tom Ellsworth, my pastor at Sherwood Oaks, always labels on himself. Oh, you guys, get ready for this. On the first day of the week, this is uh, chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. What? There were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Now, I'm going to grab a microphone and call up for her for her five seconds of stand-up comedy groaning fame. Amanda, are you in on this or what? Or do you just want to yell it loud? You just want to say it loud. Hey! When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Eutychus too. Paul went down threw himself on the young man, put his arms around him and said, don't be alarmed, he's alive. Yeah, right. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. My friends, we should talk about this. What's most alarming? The tumble, the resuscitation, the nonchalance of a midnight snack, or that Paul didn't shut it down? You talk about it. Okay, okay, okay. Let's just vote digitally real fast. What's the most alarming? One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four. Just vote digitally right here. Katie, Wang, Katie, Wang, two. The resuscitation. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fours and threes. Throwing up a one, two, threes. I got them all. Threes, threes, threes. Thank you so much. Four, fours, fours. A lot of fours. Got that two. I'll take that, Ash. Threes, eight. <laughs> 
I don't know. Ah, ah, so good, right? Ah, this is insane. Guys, I never want to hear jokes about my preaching. Paul acts like Elisha and Elijah. Immediately, that's where your mind went to, right? Paul acts immediately like Elisha and Elijah in the Old Testament. Those guys, those men, those Old Testament prophets, they did the exact same thing, First and Second Kings. Or your mind went to Jesus. Because Jesus absolutely did this exact same thing. He ushered everyone out of the room. He picked up the little girl. And he said, she's only asleep. Guys, this is an incredible aha right now. I need you to pick up what's happening. I need you to pick up what's happening in 19 and 20 and has been happening throughout the entirety of the book of Acts. Paul is ushering in the kingdom and he looks an awful lot like Jesus. We have been getting hints and clues about teaching and preaching freedom and the kingdom. He's been healing and exercising the demons. He's been saying in this scene, death has no sting. And he'll write that in 1 Corinthians 15. He'll say, oh, death, you have no hold here. And that's exactly the message that Jesus would speak. See, Paul is seeing the kingdom push in all around him. The kingdom is two levels. It's the awareness of who I am with God. And it's the reality that God is restoring the world back to wholeness and health. And Paul has got his eyes on both of those. His relationship with God and the way that he calls it into the world. He's going to head back just a little bit south of the city of Ephesus. And he's going to close out. Uh, the chapter with us. So let's do it together. <clears throat> you know, this is Paul talking to the leaders of the Ephesian church. You know that from day one of my arrival in Asia, I was with you totally. He's telling his church leaders, you know I was with you totally, laying my life on the line, serving the master no matter what, putting up with no end of scheming by Jews who wanted to do me in I didn't skimp or trim in any way. Every truth and every encouragement that could have made a difference to you, you got. I taught you out in public. I taught you in your homes. I urged Jews and Greeks alike to the radical life change before God and an equally radical trust in our master, Jesus He's repeating Jesus' words that the kingdom is near. It's the exact same words that John the Baptist has. John was preparing the way. And now here we are full circle that he's pointing to this side of resurrection, the fulfillment of the kingdom in Jesus. And Paul says, I've taught you everything you need to know relative to the gospel. I have taught you how to receive the gospel. I have taught you how to live the gospel. I have taught you how to defend the gospel. And now I am teaching you how to promote the gospel as the church. Paul's going to remind everyone in this little closing sermon with uh, his Ephesian church that he will not shrink from any adversary, 
He's going to remind them twice. I have not shrunken from any challenge or any attack. And I have proclaimed God's full message that humans are being restored to full fellowship with their father. It's the kingdom advancing. And then he says this, be on guard for yourself and all the flock. Like I'm getting ready to pivot to my last idea here. My last idea is that he closes it and he said, I've given you everything that I have. I've never shrunken away from the attack. And now it is your turn to be on your guard for all of the flock. And we hear flock language all through the entirety of scripture. It's in Psalms, it's in Luke. The natural outcome of guarding the flock is knowing the enemy. And this one's like a, a, a gut punch. I know that as soon as I'm gone, vicious wolves are going to show up and rip into this flock. Men from your very own ranks are going to twist words to seduce disciples into following them. We saw that last week, right? I follow Paul. I follow Paul. I follow Jesus. We saw this. They're going to twist words to seduce disciples into following them instead of Jesus. So stay awake. Keep up your guard. Remember the three years I kept at it with you, never letting up, pouring my heart out one after another. Um, this is where it becomes personal one more time for CSF. Because I'm a sending agent. I don't get to keep any of you, nor do I want to. Because I know what I'm doing here. I'm holding this text, and I'm daring you to read the words with me. And I'm making it fun. But, man, I am hammering on certain things that you must carry yourself. And then if you're in discipleship with me, what you are being called to do is say, I'm walking this out, and I'm learning how to speak it, and I'm intentionally giving this to people who are following you as I follow Christ. Guys, this ministry is here for that specific purpose, that we fill you up, that we build you as disciples, and we kick you out because you must be learning the language of Scripture and the reality of the gospel so you can test and know when people twist the hope that Jesus gives us. I love this line. You are entrusted. Like CSF, students, you are entrusted with the gospel. And what that means is you're responsible to God to carry it well. You're responsible for learning. You're responsible for testing responsible for taking the gospel with you. And so I'll close the sermon tonight with verse 32 as a prayer like Paul is praying for you and I today. Dear God, we turn uh, our ministry over to you. Marvelous God whose gracious word can make you into what you want us to be and give us everything we could possibly need in this community 
of holiness. I pray. Amen. Thank you.